0: Welcome to Talking Migration. I'm Clara Sandlin, and Talking Migration is supported by the Department of Politics and the Migration Research Group, both at the University of Sheffield. One of the ways that refugees have tried to make it to Europe is through the so called Balkan route. Yet as the EU and European leaders have tried to shut this way by increasing border controls, many refugees and other migrants have become trapped along this Balkan route. The research team, IR and Aesthetics, from Aston University have just returned from Serbia, Macedonia and Greece, where they spoke to the people who are stuck and those who are trying to help. In this podcast episode, we hear from two of the researchers, Gemma Bird and Patricia Rubiske, who discuss how refugees use technology to stay informed about border changes, the spread of misinformation, the use of graffiti to make political statements, and the prospects for those trapped on their journey. To start, Patricia tells us about their project and their work along the Balkan route.
1: Thank you, first of all, to uh, for the invite to talk about our project. Um, then, um, yeah, the project itself. So, it's a Aston Centre for Europe field research project. Which um, initially was focused on investigating the stories of migration and refugee crisis in Serbia and Greece, Um, very importantly from slightly different interdisciplinary perspectives. So instead of just focusing on typical approach of like policy measures implementation and um, adjustment, we actually focused on the numbers slightly less. Usual topics so we worked for example political expression in marginalized communities through use of graffiti and music um, use of technology Uh, We investigated everyday geographies of the refugee crisis including visiting squads um, camps um, different daycare centers And then we also focus on migration and trauma and children in the whole process um, and very big attention to the ethical aspect of it, and actually looking in things which normal research in political science and international relations doesn't look at, but we focus on experiences of like smells, sounds, the spaces themselves, um, and kind of visual information that we can collect. Um, maybe something I should have started from there's actually four of us in the project. So we have Amanda Beatty working on ethics and international relations, life experience of child migrants. Uh, we have Germa bird who is like joining us today, uh, working on visual aesthetics and narratives. Um, Jelena Obravedović-Wochning, working on space, political geography, um, informal settlements. And then me at the end working on the music and technology. Um, what else could i tell you about the project itself well we went to um really different spaces and we conducted lots of interviews um so maybe like first the uh, spaces that we visited so we started in serbia in belgrade uh, when we visited some of the squads or rather like some remnants of those squads where um refugees were staying for short periods of times um, we went to visit two sites in Shit and Kikinda, which are um, current refugee centers. One of them is a um, transfer center. Um, we have been at the borders with Romania, Hungary and Croatia. And after that, we went to Greece when we went to Thessaloniki and Athens. when Where again, we visited some of the squad refugee um, information centers, info points. Um, and a lot of kind of ad hoc voluntary organizations. Mm, oh, I forgot about
0: something?
2: I don't think so. I think you've covered. <laughs> I, was, I was trying we, to do like,
0: yeah. Okay, so in a way, I suppose you did the, I don't know if this is correct to say, but in a way, you kind of did the Balkan route like in reverse?
2: We did, yeah. So yeah. we focused on kind of starting in Serbia and going down to Greece. Um, but we followed, um, there's a, one motorway that kind of moves between the two um, and, that's, and there's a train line as well that runs quite close by it and we followed um, that train line and that's the train line that you'll have seen a lot of um, in the images from 2015 um, around the Hungarian border. Mm. And that train line follows down um, between Greece and the Hungarian border.
0: Right, okay. So could you maybe give some, some background to... Um... You know the Balkan route because I think you know, like you mentioned, people have these images of, uh, uh of the 2015 crisis, um, and then there's been some uh, there's been some reports about the the border or the route being closed, sort of in citation marks, which I don't really know exactly yeah. what that actually means. So, um, you know, what what is the situation now, and what did you see?
2: Yeah, I think that's quite interesting because in March 2016. Um, the EU leaders kind of spoke about this idea of the closed border that you've mentioned uh, and they said that this route was no longer going to be active um, and there's at that point a lot of NGOs we spoke to have said that people felt that they then became stuck in Serbia mm. so where, the, where it was possible to move northwards they then felt that they couldn't move um, but actually there are still plenty of people trying um, there are still um, obviously smugglers working in this area helping people to cross borders um, and we spoke to one refugee who told us that they'd tried to cross the border 22 times oh. uh, and that they'd been sent back each time, but that they weren't going to stop and that there was this kind of desire to keep pushing forwards um, because actually zebra isn't necessarily set up for people staying. it's more of a transition country, and just closing the border doesn't really stop that from being the case. Yeah
0: um, So so what border are they trying to cross is the Hungarian border? So initially it was the Hungarian border, but there has been um,
2: also a focus on the Croatian border um, as well, and people trying to, and there has been um, rumours of people trying to go through Kosovo and things like that, and taking different routes out of the country, um, because the Hungarian border is so difficult to cross.
0: Yeah, so where are these people um, coming from, and and who are they?
2: So the Balkan route in general, um, there is quite a lot of differences, so if we when we were in Serbia, a lot of people were telling us that um, the majority of refugees come from Afri- Afghanistan and Syria, Okay. Uh, but then when you move down into Greece, that's very different again, and there's talk of the kind of demographics and languages changing, so initially it was very much Kurdish and Farsi, and now there's this real need for um, early translators and things like that, which suggests that the demographic is changing, mm. uh, and that there's a lot more people coming um, from Iran and Iraq, and that there's also... Um, there's a great, greater number of people coming from African states as well uh, in Greece at the minute, but further up the route, uh, there seems to be more of a focus up on Afghanistan uh, and Syria.
0: Is that because those people have been there for a long time? So it's basically the same people who might have come a year or two years ago?
2: There seems to be a lack of knowledge about that. So there are some UNHCR official figures about people of how many people are in the country. Yeah. Um, in different states and how long they've been there but actually when you speak to NGOs they suggest that this might not necessarily be entirely accurate. Um, people tend to try and live informally so if you don't move into a camp then you don't get registered. Mm. Uh, so if you live in parks for example or squats depending on which state you're in um, then you don't have to register and you've got people see it as having more opportunity to move forwards so the question mark about how long people have been there is quite real because not ne- figures aren't necessarily accurate.
0: Right, so did you talk to um, a lot of migrants or refugees themselves?
2: Um,
1: we had actually quite a selection of people we talked to, so um, we talked with a lot of people working for the NGOs, the volunteers are more permanent people, or they like permanent staff. Mm. Um, we talked also to academics who do research on the topic both in Serbia and in, um, and in Greece. Um, We had occasional interactions with refugees too, Um, but then the problem was of, for example, lack of access um, in Serbia when you're not allowed to actually get um, into the camp without the permission. Um, We also unusually talked with the music bands and a lot of people in the squads to kind of get a bit better grasp on the whole situation. But
2: refugees themselves, I think we had two or three direct interactions. Okay.
0: Um, and yeah, that was
2: within formal places, but when we were in squats, we obviously were able to talk to people a little bit differently.
0: Yeah. Um, so was it, like was it, you know, you, you said you have to have a permit, so is it so difficult to get these permits for researchers? Um.
1: That depends. Like for example, in Serbia, it was very easy to, in general times, organize interviews everywhere outside of the squad. Like it was very kind of ad hoc process in the sense, we send a message in the morning, and sometimes in the afternoon we already got the interview. Mm. But it's all kind of with organizations and um, uh, people working outside of the camps.
2: So yeah, to get in, internal access to the camps apparently is impossible within Serbia. Um, but yeah. in Greece it's becoming more possible, but you have to apply a very long time in advance and then go through a number of checks. Um, but there is a growing ability to access. We spoke to a number of academics who have had that access in, in Greece. Greece.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um. So, so you had a slightly different focus, then. So you said already that you were talking to um. Bands, for example. So, were that who? Who were they then?
1: Um, okay, so I'll take that one. Yeah. So the idea was that. Basically, going in and checking on kind of political expression through different forms of activism, so music, graffiti, and so on, um, was uh, like we figured out like, okay, how we're going to research that? With whom we're going to talk? And Mm. doing our preparatory research, we actually came across a number of articles, which were either listing activities of different NGOs who encourage, for example, um, especially in Greece, like music classes for children. Or, um, for example, uh, Greek bands, which are active in the process of collecting money for the squads and supporting the communities. And um, that's how we kind of narrowed down our research, our our kind of interviewee pool. And and basically, we traced down the band which was interviewed for the article which we found and Mm. we went to talk with them. Basically, the idea was to um, talk with the band. Active, doing like um, fundraising and donating money for the squats, and the idea was simply to ask them like how they see themselves in the process, mm. um, what other forms of activities they do, and um, how they kind of perceive the whole situation from their side. Um, from their side, interesting enough and worth of mentioning, the band, um, the Anfor band. It's actually a punk band, which is Greek punk band. Um, so basically, it's really constituted from um, um, all four members are Greeks. So it was interesting perspective because it's kind of outside involvement of music rather than, uh, for example, refugees performing.
0: Yeah, did you... Um, I suppose not just in music, but in terms of the focus on art you had in general, like... Um, what was the, or, or so so the art the all the the range that you uh, looked at and experienced like graffiti and the music yeah, that you talked about was that uh, mainly performed by refugees themselves or by outsiders or a combination and like what was the difference and significance?
2: I think that's that was one thing that we found really interesting was that when we spoke to um, one. One and uh, work, NGO worker, he said to us that the graffiti that you'll see has nothing to do with refugees. It's actually just Spanish volunteers and activists.
0: Spanish? Because that,
2: yes, yeah. because there's a huge Spanish um, there's a huge number of Spanish activists um, in Greece and in Serbia. All right. Um, and the guy at the NGO said that it's really important that it's important that we knew um, that the graffiti was. Not done by refugees because refugees have more important things to worry about. Right. But then we spoke to other people. Um, they kind of raised questions about this, about this question of authenticity, but especially because quite a lot of the graffiti you'll see is in Farsi. Um, so he, they were saying that yes, in some cases, obviously it's going to be um, mo- kind of solidarity thing. It's going to be examples of solidarity from activists, but actually you shouldn't take away the fact that there is a voice there from refugees and that you will see authentic kind of representations of their journey and how they're feeling. Uh, So there seemed to be this real mix, especially in Greece where actually graffiti is absolutely everywhere. It's really prevalent. Yeah. Um, And there's this huge spirit of activism more broadly. And you see this, um, especially in the area we stayed in um, an activist area within Athens and you see so much graffiti and it's quite interesting the banners and things it seems it feels like there's a real spirit of solidarity and movements within those areas
0: so what kind of graffiti uh, are we talking about
2: um so we're talking about um messages of support and things like that but also very beautiful murals um representing people moving um between various different spaces there's very um there's quite a lot. we saw a very beautiful mural about homelessness Okay. Um, which had obviously taken quite a lot of time um, and was very much artwork, but at the same time you see banners of solidarity banners of um uh, in particular- um supporting people who had found themselves in prison and things like that um supporting refugees refugees welcome being um no borders no war uh, end of capitalism end of borders that kind of um that kind of ideology
0: right. That's interesting. I, I should just maybe say, I think if you um, if you go onto your website, you can see some of this graffiti you filmed and took quite a lot of photos in you.
2: Yeah, we did. We so we recorded a lot of the visual, uh, and we also tried to record lots of kind of sounds and things like that. So there's, we've got lots of recordings, and a lot of them are on, on our Twitter and Facebook, so people can see them. Yeah,
0: that might be really interesting to people. Um, but I think one thing that I was just thinking now when you were saying that was that, you know, obviously that those. NGO workers that you mentioned who are kind of wanting to make the separation of saying that this isn't necessarily refugees themselves. So it's quite an interesting um notion of, of whose voice it, it it is uh and you know whether refugees' voices actually um I don't know are represented or distorted. I mean if you see something, for example, like you say, you know, um capitalism that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the refugee crisis, my might argue. But, you know, then it's sort of a particular kind of activism that perhaps is sort of, I don't know, I'm, I'm not trying to sort of diminish it, but, you know, sort no. of feeding off a particular crisis and what that kind of does with the people who are actually affected by it.
2: I think what's interesting, in and I agree with you entirely, actually, but I think what's quite interesting is that this idea that in Greece, there are two very different crises happening, happening simultaneously. Mm. So you have the effects of the financial crisis and the fact that people are struggling with twenty—I think it's twenty-two percent overall unemployment at Greece at the minute—and then you have and the kind of repercussions of that and how people feel about that. And at the same time, you've got the issues of the refugee crisis and how these two groups of people come together. And from what we saw in a lot of the informal spaces, there's a huge amount of solidarity between both groups. Right. Like we. St- people who are really, really struggling as a result of the financial crisis who still want to support refugees. And there's that very interesting dichotomy because you also see in formal rhetoric the opposite of that. So there's this interesting kind of dualism between what you see within squats and informal spaces and what you see in media narratives and official narratives and things like that.
0: Yeah. And what was the difference then between the different spaces that you saw in Serbia and Greece, uh, was it, well, you said that there's more graffiti in in Greece, but is it the case, I don't know how long people tend to stay in refugee camps in Serbia, for example, if if the length of the stay maybe makes people more, I don't know, keen to sort of claim that space in some form? Mm -hmm. So
1: basically the difference between two countries um, came up um, kind of definition of a country in a way so uh, Serbia is still treated as a transit country so a lot of interviews that we conducted this basis we observed, they all have rather temporal character so it's kind of set up to give very basic information and then most of the refugees from what we gathered from the interviews, they never considered Serbia as their like final stop it's just like, it's a points on the on the route. Mm. um and then in contrast to that you go to greece which moved already from the initial crisis wave to rather the sorry the language but it kind of gives the impression of a management of people in a
0: way mm.
1: so there the there's already moved towards like the elements when ngos are much more established um the institutions are a bit longer especially now with the new involvement of the local government In the whole process, the graffiti spot, um, which we observed, um, it's the Excaria um, area of Athens, which historically is actually connected with a lot of demonstrations, state opposition. And so it has this particular historical character. So it's not necessarily the whole Athens, but this particular area where most of the spots are and so on. So there is this difference of like already having relatively developed movement, social movement actually, and then on top of that comes um, the issue of like incoming uh, migrants and then kind of implementing them into the already existing community rather than the situation in Serbia when the migration is like, it's only a stop on the way.
0: Mm. So is that sorry yeah Gemma
2: no but I was just I was just gonna say I think that point is really interesting about the transition countries because whilst officials in Greece I think and NGOs talk about um kind of settling people a little bit more when you talk to refugees they see Greece as very much of a transition country mm-hmm. as well um they don't intend to stay you see people learning German learning English learning Swedish talking about the end point talking about kind of where they want to be next. They're not seeing this as a permanent placement either. But at the same time, officials are focusing on trying to make it um, so that people do feel that they can stay. Uh, And there is that interesting debate as well.
0: Yeah, well, so they can stay in Greece, not in Serbia, I suppose.
2: Yes, Serbia, as Pat says, remains very much kind of onward path, whereas Greece is changing how it looks at things.
0: Mm. So is that where you... You know, the people you spoke to, is that where people seemed mostly interested in going, like, the UK, Germany and Sweden? Mostly Germany and
1: Sweden. So we observed it, for example, in the language courses that were taught, um, that people were attending, so it was mostly German and Swedish. Mm. Um, English, interesting enough, there are courses for English, but from what we got it's only um, considered as a basically kind of lingua franca of Europe at Mm. the moment. So basics of English can help you during the transit better than, for example, German or Swedish, but then... Um, again, it differs. For example, for children, it's mostly English, for grown ups, it's German or Swedish.
0: So, who's providing those language courses?
2: You so, um, saw a number of NGOs providing language courses. Um, what's quite interesting is that you can get a certificate in German that shows your kind of standard of German that will help you later on in the stage, whereas, the people we spoke to who were being taught English. Uh, will be being taught practical English rather than kind of um, certificate-passing English, which I think feeds into Pat's point that there's a different usage for the two languages. They want to be able to prove that they're at a certain standard for German for when they finally make it to Germany, whereas English is just to get, kind of, create that path.
0: That's really interesting. I don't, this probably isn't sort of what you looked at, but you know, so don't, um, um, so maybe you won't know the answer, but um, you know, do you know because I find that quite interesting how people uh prepare and sort of plan and uh where they want to go. Um and there's this question that a lot of people talk about like how much information people actually have about the places where they want to go. So I don't know if you have got any sense talking to people about how much do people actually know about the countries where they want to go and sort of why they want to go there and how difficult they perceive it to be to get there.
1: Okay. Well, um, that's actually part of the research that we did because one of the elements we looked at was also like the use of technology and availability of technology and and through it information. Oh, yeah. And interestingly enough, we figured out that, for example, in Serbia, one of the most kind of pressing issue is um, lack of reliable information and kind of fake news stories which just spread around very quickly among um, refugee communities. So one of the elements, one of the um, NGOs we talked about, most of their work is basically creation of like kind of a mapping system when they can inform refugee or migrant who is on the route can access the information on where the help is available, what kind of services are available in different places. And Basically, make it it extremely relevant information for everyone on the route. With regard to like the final countries that people are attend well, attempting to get to, mm. it's um they do have a general idea because that's what they have to provide, for example, to the smugglers, because they do like kind of conscious selection, I would say. Um, but in some cases, it's like the family member is already in a particular country and they just want to join in. Um, they received information from one of the persons who managed to be smuggled. Um, in some situations, it's even going to such drastic examples, like for example, a husband is already in Germany and a wife is stuck somewhere else on the route. Um, so there are different kind of reasons to going to certain countries and how the information is available.
0: Yeah, I see, so that's really interesting um what you mentioned about how information spreads and technology. So is that basically provided like this mapping is that provided provided through is it smartphones people use or what is the sort of availability of technology?
1: Yeah, so we did check up that quite extensively. So in Serbia, the focus is, um, in majority of cases, on use of a mobile, so like smartphone, um, we actually didn't come across any use of, for example, computer, tablets, and so on, except the um, kind of info points and organized by NGOs which have access to it. Mm. So, the mobile is actually a primary device, so um, it's extremely important, um, not only because of the navigation, but also access to information. However, it is limited by um, two aspects. Access obviously to electricity to charge your mobile, which um, in the camps there is no problem Well, no problem. It is limited, but there's no larger problem. But on the route, it's not so easy to get access to charge your mobile. So that's one thing. And second of all, the access to the network. So what we gathered the information like, for example, in the camps, there is access to Wi-Fi networks, but it's extremely weak. So, for example, you can have a Skype call, but it's going to be only voice um, and audio, no video connection because it, it's not strong enough signal. Um, but then we also came across during the interviews information that sometimes um, mobiles and access to networks, like very basic ones, is provided by the NGOs themselves. So importance of the technology and dependency on the mobile is extremely important that's the main contact um device with anywhere outside of the um of the camps or on the route
0: yeah Uh, can i just um pick you up on a couple of things that you mentioned i um so one thing you said that the smugglers do a sort of active selection uh, and i was wondering what that means um and then in terms of you said there's sort of fake news, so to speak, spreading um in between migrants and refugees. I don't know if you have any examples of that. It's just quite interesting to see. Okay.
1: Yeah. Um, so first on the active smugglers. So basically mobiles are used as a form of contact with the smugglers. And we did some checkups of, so for example, preferred applications and like here in UK, for example, we're most familiar with like WhatsApp, Facebook messaging and so on. Um, There, the primary communication um, uh, application is actually Viber, which has slightly different technological requirements, and the information which it retains is different, allowing it to be more um, flexible and, in a way, more secure for the smugglers to communicate with people. Right, okay. So, that was on the particular aspect there. Um, With regard to the fake news, some of the examples include um, within the... The net social network established between the refugees and then in the camps and outside of the camps. Um, information drop, for example, um, within one of the interviews, one of the people said, Well, it's extremely damaging information. If, for example, someone drops in that, oh, Croatia is considering opening the borders. And then within 24 hours, there's like tons of people literally transferring themselves to the Serbian-Croatian border just because of the someone said somewhere um, without any particular kind of uh, feedback or check-up of the information. So basically most of the information which is dropped into the network refers to like opening of the borders, change of the law and so on. Mm. Unfortunately, it's a bit kind of like a gossip system. So gossip is dropped into the network, it gets repeated several number of times, and this spreads further on. But no one really checked the initial information, and that's what some of the NGOs in Serbia are working on, to make sure that every information that appears in the network, relevant for the migrants, um, that's actually checked before anything happens, because... It really has um, very radical consequences, with like you know whole families moving rapidly from one side of the country to another because the border was supposed to be open.
0: Mm.
2: Just that... to add one other thing to that first point as well, um, we also spoke to people. who said that there are actually smugglers within camps, or and um, definitely within informal camps, and not necessarily, and definitely not that the state is sanctioning this, but that maybe they're not that they're turning a blind eye in some way.
0: Right are so some
2: really interesting points about how smugglers are getting access to um refugees and where they're putting themselves
0: are smugglers are they I don't know if you know this, but do they tend to be Serbian or Greek themselves or
2: so there tends to be a use of different people, so from what we were told, um the smuggling route normally starts in your home country. Uh, And at different stages, um, you pay at different stages along the way. And often it's um, people in your home country that are paying to move you on to the next piece of the path. Um, So there are people working um, in Serbia and Greece, um, although actually smuggling is more prevalent in Serbia than it is in Greece. Uh, There's more of a a focus on use of fake passports in Greece from what people have told us. Um, Obviously, that information isn't necessarily verified um but there's different paths and once you get to one stage of the route um you're put in what's called a safe house um where the smuggler will then get in contact with your family when your family pays you're then taken out of that safe house uh, and taken onto the next part of the route so you're almost in prison for a few days whilst they wait for the next stage of payment and then this carries on until you get to your final destination
0: mm um yeah all of that you just said just says so much about them the journey really and both how vulnerable some people must be but also you know just what you mentioned about how quickly people make decisions about moving just how sort of temporary people's existence are um uh, which yeah, is yeah i think
2: that's one of the key things we spoke to someone who said that like this felt like his life was almost on hold yeah um, because of the fact that he, there was no access to education it, at home he'd been able he was um, studying uh, and this isn't something that you can do until you become a refugee until you actually have refugee status
0: this yeah. is,
2: you can't do this on the journey and your life is just on hold until you get to a point where you can restart it again so there's that temporality that really comes out of a lot of what you talk when you talk to people
0: yeah so maybe just to finish on that note um what what's your impression of uh, you know the prospects for the people living in refugee camps in um uh along the Balkan route. Um, you know, is there any are there any prospects of people being processed or being moved on? Or, you know, you mentioned that in Greece there is kind of a, maybe a move towards actually making people more permanent but, but not in Serbia. So what are people's prospects if they're in Serbia for example? I don't know. From the
2: people we spoke to um, if, amongst the refugee communities themselves, there still seems to be a sense of hope, a hope of moving to final destinations,
0: yeah. um,
2: but there are obviously delays in that. I spoke to a number of uh, NGOs who mentioned the fact that family reunification is taking up to two years um, outside of um, one state, whereas obviously family reunification within uh, a state is a lot quicker. So if you're in two different parts of Greece, I think there's things they can do to prioritise reunification. Mm. Uh, but once one member has entered into Germany, say, this is a far longer process. Uh, so in that sense, it feels like um, people are stuck. Uh, there's also the case of, I think it's worth considering that there is almost a lost generation of children that haven't, aren't able to necessarily progress in the way they otherwise would have. Um, whilst they can go to local schools, this is only whilst you're actually in a fixed location, obviously when you then start moving again um that doesn't happen but when you go to school in Greece you can use that those credits um when you then get to a different state because of kind of european rules so there is some hope in that area but there is this worry <coughs> that kind of being lost from the process yeah i don't know Pat, if you have a different view on that um i think like against like all those elements which we
1: observe so kind of like the feeling of being stuck. Um, in case of children and and the, the um, lost generation, there's actually really lots of hope between people. Um, but interesting enough, it's not necessarily kind of a hope for like oh, this is going to be like um, wonderful country and all these kind of things. So the final point, it's rather um, looking for a home, so very simple needs and. Everyone kind of hopes, like, okay, now everything is on hold. But one day when we finally get to our destination, um, we're going to, like, really put our life back on track. And that particular feeling of hope between people we talked to, uh, it was just really amazing. Something which really doesn't come up in... uh, typical interviews and checkups. So that was an interesting aspect that like, no matter of the circumstances, obviously there are situations when people are really, really down, but there's a lot of hope and kind of looking into, like, um, well, horrible searches, but like productive uh, incorporation into society. So it's a very interesting aspect um,
2: of hope.
0: Yeah um is there anything else you'd like to add um
2: no I think yeah I think that point about hope is really important I think if you speak to children if you speak to adults there is always that this is temporary this is this is a period that we're going through but actually we want to get our life back on tracks and like Pat said we want to find a home and there is hope there um the Discussion of crisis seems to be over with NGOs as we've said people aren't talking about humanitarian crisis anymore They're talking about the next stage um, Whether or not that's the case I think is open for discussion, but That seems to be the kind of big focus is that we're moving into the next stage of integration and what happens next mm. True, I think the additional point that
1: we kind of came across during all the interviews and experiences and so on, It's also like extreme engagement from the side of the volunteers and refugees themselves. So um, some of them are extremely interested in organizing, for example, inter-community interactions, um, support, um, any form of kind of fundraising, and really kind of sense of um, community, which is very interesting and kind of um totally opposite of what we get in media and from the politicians which kind of go for example for this like negative image and like sentences which very often come up in the press and media like, Oh refugees will come and take our jobs and so on. That's not what we came across. So like we met with tons of people and we kind of get impression, well, they're in trouble. Situation, their situation is horrible, and we should help them. And people really do help. So that's kind of interesting perspective, um, which is totally opposite of, like, kind of ongoing media and political discussion.
0: To find out more about this research project, please visit our website, talkimmigration.com. There you'll also find links to their Facebook and Twitter feeds, which has photos and videos from the Balkan route that they visited. That was all for this episode. Thank you for listening.